First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome to Most Innovative Companies. I'm your host, Yasmin Gagne, joined by my producer, Josh Christensen. Hey, Josh. Hey, Yas. Josh, have you made your fantasy football picks? Oh, yeah. No, I'm I'm way ahead of fantasy football picks because I do what's called a dynasty league, which if anyone's listening who's a fantasy football nerd knows what that is, it means you draft the team and then it carries over year to year. So basically you run your own roster and there's like a lot more trades and then there's off-season stuff. It's the nerdiest version of fantasy football. In your league, what does the winner get and what does the loser get? So we have a buy-in. Well, some leagues are different, so you get some money, but there can also be some like loser penalties as well, which if you're ever online, there's some very funny loser penalties. My favorite one was someone had to, who lost the league, came in last place in their fantasy football league, had to sit in an IHOP or a Waffle House or something Mm -hmm. like that and eat a pancake. It's like 24 hours and for every pancake they ate, they got one less hour that they had to be in the pancake shop, (laughs) which is ridiculous. (laughs) My husband is in one and I think one year they the loser had to take the SAT. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> For a lot of reasons. One, because the SAT is like a miserable three-hour long, like really annoying standardized test. And you have to get up so early to take it. And you're taking it with a bunch of 16 and 17-year-olds. Exactly. It's not like the LSAT where it's like adults in there. Yeah, no, I think I would rather take the LSAT. <laughs> anyway, before we go on, do we have any housekeeping? Just one piece of housekeeping that I want to drive home today because we are three weeks away from Fast Company Innovation Festival. So reminder that we are hosting a week-long festival in New York City at Convene downtown at Brookfield Plaza. We put a link to tickets uh, down there in the show notes, so go click on that. Get your tickets. We have so much great programming, and you can meet Yaz and I because we'll be there all week long. (laughs) You know, every for the past two episodes, I've been like, oh my god, slide into our DMs. We'd love to meet you. No one has taken me up on that. Well, because we also don't give people our social handles, (laughs) which we should start doing. So there's a flaw in our logic here. (laughs) Nice one, Yaz and Josh. (laughs) At the Joshua Chris on uh, Instagram and you are Yazzy G on Instagram. And Yasmin Gagne on Twitter. I don't use Twitter anymore. I've completely left that platform. I'm just really bad at tweeting. I'm not funny enough in like a pithy way. (laughs) You're not funny enough in 200. Well, they do have long form stuff now on X. Like when I think of something funny, and this is me, I'm not that funny anyway, but like I'll just text someone. Like I never have that impulse. I mean, I think that's fine. I think just have some group chats. That's also going to like get you in less trouble too. And Anyway, later on today's episode, this is a true episode for bros, I feel. David Salazar, friend of the pod, will be talking with Seth Rogen about his cannabis company, Houseplant. But first, YouTube is the most popular destination on connected TVs. And next month, it's taking on its most high-profile project, broadcasting the NFL's Sunday Ticket. Here to help break down what this means for the digital media giant is Fast Company senior writer Ainsley Harris. Hey, Ainsley. Hey, yes. Great to see you. So let's talk a little bit about what this actually means. Why did YouTube acquire those rights? You know, YouTube has 2 billion monthly active users. 
why do they need more people? <laughs> yeah, why do they need more stuff? There are a million different things you can watch on YouTube. But in a way, it's almost sort of overwhelming. And I think things kind of get lost in the shuffle. So YouTube's consumption is heavily fragmented. You know, everyone is watching YouTube, but very few people, even your best friend, is probably watching something different from you. Having something like Sunday Ticket, which is a real sort of kind of cornerstone type of content, consistently NFL games are among the most watched broadcasts every year. If you're looking at the charts around like linear TV, you know, there are always NFL games in that. It's not just the Super Bowl. <laughs> Millions of people are watching these games. Real question for you. The NFL is obviously like huge in the States, right? Is it also big around the world? Like, is it, or is this really just an effort that's concentrated in North America? You know, it hasn't been something they've talked about a lot yet, um, but the NFL is interested in expanding internationally. It's something that they're definitely interested in, in leaning into, I think. And YouTube is obviously a great partner to that, too. The first NFL Sunday ticket games on YouTube are going to be played the weekend after Labor Day. And so this is all just sort of getting underway. And it's also a seven-year deal. So this is really just sort of the early innings. They haven't leaned into that global piece quite yet. But I think one thing they've been very clear about is that they see this as a long-term partnership. And how much did YouTube pay for it? I know they have $40 billion in revenue a year, but it was a lot of money, right? Yeah, I think they paid $14 billion for the rights. It's a seven-year deal. Yep, <laughs> it's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money. And, and that's really, I mean, in my understanding, just what they're paying the NFL directly for the rights, right? There's additional money that they are spending on. I'm sure <laughs> part of, I'm probably getting followed around the internet with YouTube Sunday ticket ads because of writing this story. Um, but you've probably seen them too. They are everywhere, like right now, you know, they're really promoting this in a big way. And they've made a lot of technical investments in their infrastructure in order to be able to actually broadcast live these games. Obviously, it also costs consumers. You're paying maybe a couple hundred bucks, so it is also a revenue generator for them. YouTube, and I mean, to me, I still use it this way, was kind of known for being the platform that you procrastinate on, right? Now it's obviously a super popular destination on connected TVs, and it's like people sit down to watch the NFL. It's destination viewing. Tell me a little bit about how this shift happened. I think a lot of it is that YouTube viewers have really grown up along with the platform and along with the creators that are on it. Some of them may have started out making the uh, stereotypical videos in their basement. Mm -hmm. That same person today has a production studio and a team and sophisticated graphics and Hollywood-esque editing. There's a real evolution that's happened in terms of sort of the, the professionalism of creators themselves. And so I think you are seeing that in viewers' response that they're saying, you know, this is content that is on par with what I'm getting from Netflix or what I'm getting from a Hollywood studio releasing its next film. So it deserves a spot on the big screen. People certainly are also still watching plenty of YouTube on their phones. And particularly as YouTube has leaned into shorts, they're sort of, you know, played to take on TikTok. But it has been just really striking to see that they have been able to really capture the living room in the way that they have. To them, it's not just that like, oh, yeah, we're on living room TVs. Isn't that cool? It's that there are advertisers who are going to say, oh, I'm going to think about YouTube differently now because I know that someone is really sitting on their sofa, leaning back, spending an hour or two, and that's a really different kind of 
opportunity for a marketer than someone spending five minutes on their phone. It's so crazy to me. I actually read a stat that I think it's like most Gen Z prefer watching user generated content compared to like content that is made for them, you know, like a show. And I think about all that all the time because I'm I'm not in that bucket. You're old school, you know, like, <laughs> and I'm just old. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I guess we share that. Um, though I will say I did have to watch a lot of creator content for this article. And um, it is really interesting. Like, you quickly realize, like, what a broad range there is. And Are you a Mr. They- Beast fan now? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, well, I'm not a teenage boy, so I don't think I'm really designed to be a <laughs> Mr. Beast fan. You're not into toxic philanthropy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, target me on online because that's my primary interest, toxic philanthropy. <laughs> Big fans of the Sacklers and Mr. Yeah. Beast. That's, that's a little unfair to link those two together. Next time I talk to you, you're going to be like, you know, I do think Jordan Peterson makes a few points. <laughs> you can watch YouTube without going down that rabbit hole, I think. Yeah. But uh, looping back to a more uh, serious point about creators, I wonder how much YouTube is planning in this endeavor. And I wonder if you have some answers to this, including more of their creators in some of these like alternate broadcasts that we've seen pop up on like you know, I think Amazon Prime has had like Dude Perfect do an alternate broadcast or then the Nickelodeon like children's more focused slime cast. And then the most famous Dude one Perfect is-, is part of this, right, Ainsley? Yeah, it's unclear what they'll be part of exactly with Sunday Ticket going forward, but they are definitely there. One of the alternate telecasts for the Thursday night games that the Mm -hmm. NFL does with Amazon. And those have been really successful for them. And also the Manning cast, maybe Josh. Yeah, that's what I was just getting to. Oh, I'm a fan. (laughs) That one, I think a million people or something tune in to watch that. That's the cast that I watch. I kind of enjoy these alternate casts because it's a little bit like... Like, there's a lot of downtime sometimes in sports, which I think makes it a little more appealing to watch something that's interspersed. You're basically hanging out with someone, right? You're getting to, like, have your buddy on the sofa with you, except your buddy is, like, Eli Manning. (laughs) And who's more set up to do this well than YouTube? Exactly. I don't care about football, but I think the Manning cast is so fun. I mean, I just love men with really large heads busting (laughs) on each other. It's great. And it's become really popular, especially the kind of growth and popularity of fantasy sports and sports betting as that's been legalized, which I think is probably another reason why YouTube is jumping into this is because as sports betting gets legalized in more and more states and the NFL is partnered with these fan duels and Caesars and draft kings while they're still also punishing players for gambling in these partnerships which is a whole other conversation but like i imagine that's a revenue stream that is making these streaming platforms really want to jump on the nfl bandwagon more than they already would have i think people's viewing has changed because of fantasy and and because of video games and all these things you know you obviously have part of what makes the nfl such a powerful brand and such a powerful media entity is the loyalty that people have to their home team Mm -hmm. but at the same time you have these new sort of trends in terms of how people are interacting with nfl content one of the things that they are most excited about is this feature they're calling multi-view will you be able to in the same way as if you were kind of at a sports bar you know looking at multiple screens you'll be able to have multiple games 
on your living room screen at the same time. And you be able to kind of pick which one you're listening to in terms of the sound, but be able to actually see the action at the same time across these different streams. I think they're one sort of seeing this as a social thing, right? Like maybe your friends are coming over and maybe you're all kind of watching these things together and you have different favorites. Um, but also, yeah, they're, whether it's betting or fantasy or other ways that you sort of have an attachment to what's happening in the NFL, mm-hmm. like you might want to be watching all these things at the same time. And that's actually really difficult to pull off technically. They did test this out with March Madness last year, and I watched a decent amount of it with the four, it was four boxes that you had max, and it was pretty seamless. Like, the product was, at least from my user experience, pretty good. They actually went and YouTube designed their own silicon chips in order to do this because they don't want to get caught out because some partner who controls some piece of the chain here messes up. I think that really speaks to sort of the long-term investment that they're making in live, you know, both live sports and live NFL games. Um, But also you can imagine, I don't know, maybe you're watching multiple Coachella stages at the same time. Mm. Yeah, I'm imagining a world where I can watch the Gilded Age while Lou watches the Texans. (laughs) (laughs) Just a big fan of Christine Berinsky. (laughs) I am curious, you know, to go back to the creators. Tell me a little bit about some of the content or some of the weirder content that you've seen from creators around football games. And also whether you think there's a downside to creators with all this. When you talk to creators and you talk to the agents who rep them, they are tentatively feeling optimistic about something like Sunday Ticket coming to YouTube in that, you know, hey, it brings more people to the platform. So I think there's some, you know, some sort of cautious optimism around that for a smaller group of creators have been involved in promoting Sunday Ticket. And so that's obviously been great for those individual creators who some of them were at the NFL draft, for example. So doing kind of promo videos and that kind of thing. I think creators are kind of in a funny spot now with YouTube, though, partly because YouTube has really been leaning into shorts. It's hard to advertise against really short content just from a structural point of view. And I think YouTube hasn't really solved that yet. And so a lot of creators are frustrated because obviously if you're a viewer, you only have so many minutes in the day. Any minute that you're spending with a short is a minute that's taking away from the more lucrative, longer videos. I think audiences are definitely there for it, but the money is not there yet. And that's been really tough for people who are also seeing a hit from just the overall downturn in the ad market. YouTube has a relatively new CEO in Neil Mohan. Do you think he has a very different strategy compared to its previous CEO? I think Susan Wojcicki. He's been at YouTube, Google for a while, so he's definitely sort of part of the machine. I think what's interesting about Neil Mohan is that he's, you know, kind of a product guy. And I think you start to realize that in contrast to other streamers who are having to make budget cuts and are really struggling to sort of figure out how their business models are going to work. YouTube, meanwhile, is doing great. It's not affected by the strikes and the fact that they're really committed to making TV more interactive in ways that might be sort of new and surprising. And to see that where at the same time, Hollywood is sort of just really stuck. This feels like a real moment for them to race ahead of the pack. But there are some Hollywood players, right? We mentioned Amazon earlier. I mean, tell me about the other digital media companies that are in this space. 
Amazon, yes, last year had its first year sort of broadcasting the NFL's Thursday night games. I think they paid a billion dollars per year for 11 years. YouTube is going to kind of lean into its creators, perhaps, and sort of promote them through this deal. Amazon, you know, has the potential to sort of lean into its retail operations and kind of support its e-commerce business. Of course, Apple has this deal with MLS and, you know, that is a way for it to sell more tablets and all the stuff that it sells and its services. So everyone is, I think, trying to figure out, like, how do they connect the dots between live sports and their own business objectives? There is something so funny about the fact that at some point there were a bunch of short-lived experiments by the NFL, like streaming games on Twitter. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, these guys have been experimenting for a long time and not a lot of it has had staying power. Solve your CTE problem, guys. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's a whole nother thing. It's such an interesting thing with Amazon spending so much money on the Thursday night football, because for a long time, Thursday night football outside of the Thanksgiving games has been kind of a joke. It's always been kind of bad, but maybe they can turn that around. Now that this partnership has been announced, like what can we expect to see broadly? So I think you can see the games. They'll be airing on Sundays. I think the main thing to look for is going forward what YouTube does in terms of experimentation with the actual viewing product. And I think that's what I'm going to be curious to see. There's obviously there's the games themselves and whether they successfully get into people's living rooms and people tune in. I personally am really curious to see what they make possible in terms of viewer interactivity and how marketers take advantage of that. I don't know if I'm going to be tuning in because I have historically been a Packers fan and this is a very complicated year for us. I think Aaron Rodgers is really hot, but then he... Oh, no. Yeah. You you said this historically on the podcast and I haven't believed you that you have horrible taste in men, but this proves it. (laughs) Get on the Jordan love train. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break, followed by David Salazar's interview with Seth Rogen about how he became interested in creating well-crafted accessories for weed enthusiasts. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hi, Seth. It's great to uh, meet virtually and, and talk to you a little bit about Houseplant. I know there's some exciting stuff coming out of your brand. I know that you're launching a new version of the uh, ashtray that you've designed and sort of is the flagship product of, of the brand. So I'd love to just start talking about, you know, it's been a couple of years of Houseplant now, a little more than a year, I think. I know that uh, in the past you've said, you know, you kind of came to it through your wife introducing you to pottery. What was that sort of like discovering this new interest and applying it to an interest you already had? 
it was really uh, gratifying and and kind of like it was kind of like a life changing uh, thing in a lot of ways. You know, um, I've always had like hobbies. You know, I guess you would say, and I've always been on the search for more creative outlets. I am always like seeking ways to kind of express myself in, in different ways. And I've painted. I did photography a long time. I have a lot of cameras and things like that. I've tried various things. I had a big like gardening phase, <laughs> but. My wife, Lauren, was always like, she had done pottery when she was young and ceramics, and she was always kind of imploring me uh, to try it and for us to go take a lesson together. And and then I did. I went to a local studio in LA called Bitterroot, and I took a lesson, and, and I really just loved it. I instantly fell in love with it. And we very quickly bought our own wheels and our own kiln and started, you know, we took workshops and classes, we took glaze making classes, formulation classes, all this stuff. We, I mean, we went very deep into it, you know, um, but really the first thing that I started making was ashtrays, you know, um, I smoke a lot of weed and I have for a long time and, and ashtrays are a thing that I've actually like collected for a long time. And I would start by buying them just in like secondhand stores, you know, and then I kind of would start buying them off of eBay and stuff like that. And, I kind of became fascinated with a time when kind of like great design minds were putting their thoughts towards smoking, you know? And although they were originally made for cigarettes, I was kind of repurposing them to smoke weed with. And and I took great joy in like giving these things that had kind of fallen out of fashion, like a, like a, a second life a little bit, you know what I mean? But that being said, they kind of, a lot of them weren't designed like to my very specific desires, you know? And so when I started doing pottery, I started making ashtrays that I, you know, that were kind of based on exactly the, what I wanted, which was kind of like a notch to hold the joint and like a very deep well that could kind of hold, you know, uh, the ash. It was just kind of more simple and, you know, it had some nice shape to it. But yeah, it was, I wanted to be able to put a lot of roaches in there and not have them blow away and to be able to walk around with it and move with it, but also be able to like rest a joint on there and not have it fall in and be able to cleanly kind of pick it up and put it back down. Because I tend to like, I'll take a few puffs of my joint and I'll put it down and I'll walk away and then I'll come back to it, you know. And so, yeah, I started making those ashtrays and I would post them and, people really responded to them and, and and people really liked them. And it really spoke, I think, to a lot of things, but mostly I think like in broadest terms, just this idea that like not a lot of people were putting a lot of like thought into like the lifestyles of people who smoke weed from like a houseware standpoint, you know, and I was, you know, meanwhile, I'd been working years and years and years on like a weed company. And in Canada, we had been selling weed, you know, and this idea of kind of like combining the companies um, and making a like a weed home goods company became really like exciting and kind of novel and something that you know, like kind of couldn't have been a better expression of like my taste and passions and and sensibilities, you know, which to me was, was very exciting. So that, that kind of became like the cornerstone of houseplant. You know, we, we make lighters and, and other things like that, grinders, rolling trays, but, but the, the very simple kind of ashtray was, yeah, is like one of the foundational things we sell. Totally, yeah, and I think, to your point, I think you're, you're very right that it's been a long time since anyone thought about what ashtrays look like. Yeah. Older stuff, I mean, I have uh, I have an aunt and uncle who are very old, and they have these sort of, like, older, very nice, like, standing ashtrays yeah. that sit near the couch. They haven't used them in decades, but they're there, and they look really cool. Yeah, I mean, there was a time when, uh, yeah, like, unabashedly great architects, great designers would design ashtrays, fashion houses. 
again, I mean, smoking was so popular that like whenever something's popular, it's more enticing for like creative minds to put their energy towards it in a lot of ways, you know, um, and for those things to be funded by big companies who want to sell them, you know. And so like, yeah, it was this really like interesting time of like a lot of people putting a lot of thought, time, energy and like passion into what an ashtray should look like. And then that just completely went away as it probably should have with the kind of, you know, realization that smoking cigarettes was killing everybody. But uh, with the rise of smoking weed, yeah, it's really exciting to A, kind of be able to give some of these old things new life and, and to be able to inspire people to put that same thought into ashtrays once again. And, you know, I, I design a lot of our ashtrays, but we also work with a lot of like very talented designers and, and we make a lot of beautiful stuff with a lot of brilliant creative people who are really excited to make ashtrays um, because it's something that speaks to their lifestyle. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, there's something to be said about sort of this convergence that's happening, right, between a renaissance of, like, mid-century modern sensibility, wanting, like, a very beautiful housewares, and also sort of, like, weed smokers generally, I think, realizing that they're not being served by the, like, $30 bodega bong yeah. or the, <laughs> you know, the Rick and Morty ashtray that they get at the local corner store when they, when they like, go and buy their weed. Have you seen this sort of in the past 10 years as weed smoking becomes a little bit more mainstream and as you are kind of perfectly positioned as someone who was smoking weed in the 90s when it was still very sort of taboo, hush-hush, and now it's becoming something that people want to bring into their homes in an upscale way, not the Rick and Morty bubbler or the the ugly Joe Camel ashtray. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it speaks to an overall, like, destigmatization of weed and sort of a pent-up desire from weed smokers to be treated as, you know, like normal people who like nice things, you know? I think we grow up in a world where, like, alcohol is so proudly displayed there. Everywhere you go, the bar features the alcohol. It's so beautifully lit and displayed. People's homes. I remember when I was young, one of the first things you do is you get a little bar, you display all the alcohol you have. People have wine glasses, martini shakers. And what's nice is I think we're, like, in an era of, like, a reckoning of hypocrisies in a lot of way. And there are, like, few cultural hypocrisies more prevalent to me than the fact that, like, alcohol is completely culturally acceptable. And not just that, like celebrated and and beautiful things are built and dedicated to it. And weed it was always viewed as this like terrible thing, you know, when the reality is like alcohol is terrible for you and weed does not carry like one iota of the negative side effects that that alcohol has, you know. And so part of it is that we've been treated very unfairly and we've been lied to over and over again. People have gone out of their way to make make us seem like less than members of society, you know? And so the fact that there's a desire to celebrate weed and applaud it and really like put forth our passion for it and display it with pride, to me, that's like a feeling that I have. And, and, and a feeling I think other people have is like, I shouldn't have to like hide it under my coffee table. I should be able to display it proudly and I shouldn't be having to have this ashtray that like I'm shoving in the drawer every time everyone comes over because I'm ashamed of it or because culturally it's not as accepted, you know, but instead, like, why not have something that speaks to my taste and my passion and the things that I like doing with my time and my energy, you know? 
And I think people have like a very, it's nice when you smoke weed and you get a product that clearly has had a lot of time and energy and consideration put into it. Because I think to what you're saying, we're used to being fed products that have had no time or energy or consideration put into them. And I think it's a very validating experience to get a, a product that speaks to your taste and your lifestyle and is highly considered and well-made, you know, because it, it, it's validating and, and, and it tells you that other people agree with you and, and they, they also think that this is a worthy thing to be doing to the point that they've dedicated a huge amount of time and energy into creating these products specifically for people who like to do this, you know? And so I think it's like a long time coming. I think it's nice that Finally, you know, people are able to celebrate their love of weed and the things are moving in that direction. I mean, they still have a long way to go, honestly. Weed is still much harder to get than alcohol, even though alcohol is much more dangerous. And that simply makes no sense. And as long as there are things like that that are just like blatantly hypocritical, <laughs> staring us in the face, it's hard to be like completely thrilled with the situation. But it's for sure moving in the right direction, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree. I will say <laughs> my personal weed smoking heyday did not coincide with the rise of, of these sort of brands so right? like for a very long time. <laughs> Your heyday wasn't long enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel, <laughs> I feel bad. But yeah, for a long time, the centerpiece of my first apartment after college centerpiece of the living room was this ugly like $30 bong that sat on the coffee table next to a repurposed Urban Outfitters bowl yeah. that was like nicer than an ashtray like trying to, to aestheticize it a little bit but still was kind of unsightly. But you saw the desire. You had the instinct to try to make it nice, you know, and to and to make it fit like as nice as other things. And I think like that's something that I'm always thinking of is like I love weed. And to me weed is like one of the best things in the world. And it's made my life like so much better and more livable. And to that end, like it deserves nice things, you know? And I think people mm -hmm. who love weed have that instinct is to like how do I find my own way to celebrate this and to put it on a pedestal because I like it. And and for most people, it's by kind of finding your own ways to do it because there aren't things being made to do it. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things that's nice is to be able to make things that celebrate people who smoke weed, you know? Yeah, not for nothing. You stumbled onto a huge white space that uh, I'm sure you're seeing is people are very receptive to the need for these sort of higher design items. Yeah, I mean, it's something that was like, it's nice. And it happens with movies sometimes where like you have an idea that is personal to you, that you're passionate about, and also something that not a lot of other people seem to have been thinking about that much. When all those things happen, it's, it's really nice. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so I'd love to, if you can talk a little bit about coming from the world of movies and coming from comedy and obviously a fan of weed, a weed evangelist yep. of sorts. But you're not a product designer necessarily. You, you weren't running a business in the same way. You weren't like, you know, inventorying products and knowing what needed to go out. <laughs> what was the learning curve there like? And how have you, how do you feel you've, you've done learning to run a brand rather than, you know, work for a movie production company or write a script or, or learn your lines? Um, it's been really interesting. And, you know, in, in some ways it could not be more different. And in other ways it, it's very similar, you know, like from a macro standpoint, like we are trying to make products that people love and are happy that they've spent their 
money and time on that speak to our tastes and sensibilities and passions as who we are as people. And hopefully that is coming across in our work. So in that sense, it's exactly the same as making a movie. And within the making of a movie, there is physical representations of things like this, you know? Like, you know, when we made this at the end, like, we essentially had to build a house and design that house and really lay out the house and what's in the house, what in the house speaks to the characters and to the comedy and serves the story, you know? So when you're producing and directing, I would actually say that, like, there, there is a kind of a direct link to, like, design and architecture in a lot of ways because... They are both art forms that really explore space in like a visual sense, you know, but as far as, yeah, like manufacturing physical products and packaging, all this stuff, that was completely new to me and and keeping a thing going was was new to me. Like uh, the thing about a movie is you kind of lead up to it and then it comes out and it stops. And I work on TV shows now and those are the same, but even though th those have like a longer you know, runway that you're trying to land your plane on, but at the same time, they are finite as well. And, and, and houseplant is something that hopefully will live on forever, you know? And I think that's just like a slightly different exercise in, in how to keep a thing going and keep it the same in some ways, but evolve it and keep it innovative and exciting at the same time. And that's been a really interesting and fun exercise, honestly. Yeah. Like, in general, it's been really fun and exciting. And when people come up to me, you know, I travel the world and people come up to me who love our stuff and who know about our stuff and who you can see smoke weed and have never seen a thing that, like, speaks to their passion and love for weed in the way that we do with, with some of the stuff we make. And, and it's great. And it's just as exciting as when someone comes up to me and is like, I love Superbad or I love Pineapple Express. Like, I, it, it feels the same in that, like, we put as much of ourselves into this product as possible and people have got that product and received it in the exact way that we hope they would, you know? Yeah, I'm sure that feeling is is great and uh, universal in that sense. To go on a little bit about your your discussion of of designing and iterating and, and changing things, I know that the Ashtray 3 is coming out. Yeah. What are some of the changes here from the early version and, uh, you know, what what's new with it and how does it sort of fit into the rest of the houseplant line? I mean, what's interesting is it's a lot more sculptural, I think. It's a lot bigger. I think it's more of a centerpiece than some of the other ones um, we've made are. Like, I think in and of itself, it kind of looks like a small vase. And it is literally based on a thing I made. And it's funny because I think it speaks to my own progression in some ways. When I first started making ashtrays, they were simple, kind of rudimentary. The shape and design, you know, was very utilitarian and spoke, I think, to the fact that I was just learning how to do ceramics. And then as I got better, I think I grew more comfortable making bigger things that were meant to be looked at a little bit more and meant to be held and picked up a little bit more and, and meant to be a little bit more of a centerpiece rather than something that was like sitting on, on the side table. And so... Yeah, it's been an exciting thing. And and like most things, I mean, this was literally like a version of this was sitting on my coffee table at home. And and I picked it up and was like, oh, how about this for a new, <laughs> how about this for a new uh, ashtray design? It's something that I made and people seem to like and, and speaks to a new direction um, for what we've been doing. Um, but yeah, it, it's been... 
it's overall really exciting and, and does feel like an outwardly creative endeavor as to like what products we make. I think there's some roadmap, but at the same time, like some of our best, most exciting products are things like the like vinyl box set, which are like essentially mixtapes made into records that are uh, kind of linked up to different strains of weed. So there's like a sativa record which with upbeat music and an indica record with really mellow music and a hybrid record with music in between. And it's all songs we license. And it's like a playlist, you know, um, that does not fit into like any conventional home goods, like conversation, you know, um, but it's something that we were just brainstorming and became very excited about and thought was really cool and thought spoke to all the things that we've been talking about. You know, if you smoke weed and you feel underserviced, no one's ever put that much thought into how to create like a listening experience that is specifically curated for people who, who, who like weed, you know? And so it really worked. And, and so there's like, there's kind of a logistical path we take towards product development, which is, what sells well, what colors people seem to respond to, what people seem to like. And then there's a very creative version, which is just like, what what do we laugh at? What gets exciting to us? What, what, what is stuff that as we just are talking about it, we're like, oh, I would want that. If I saw that, I would think that was a cool idea, you know? And those ideas don't always fit into like the strictly logistical businessy conversations, but they're the things that we try to take as many swings on as possible because they are what keep us excited and and what keep the products more representative of the things that we actually think are cool. Yeah, it definitely sounds like you're simultaneously sort of committed to, you know, one evolving the brand and the products as as you have evolved your sort of craft, your your capabilities and also coming out of left field taking a risk on a on a playlist as a record or, you know, something that that you would want to see from a brand too. Exactly. I think it's like a, a combination of the two is has seems like an exciting and fun and uh, you know, reasonably uh, smart path from a business standpoint. <laughs> Absolutely. How often have you done the, like, scene from Ghost thing with your pottery wheel? <laughs> a number of times, actually. More often than you'd <laughs> think. We have people come over and do pottery at our house very regularly. We teach a lot of friends, and almost every one of those uh, experiences inevitably has a has a ghost moment. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, I guess, in the vein of the, the topic of discussion, which do you prefer, Sativa Indica, Hybrid? I smoke Sativa, like, all day, basically. And I, I essentially smoke, like, I, I'll smoke Sativa all day and smoke, like, one Indica joint at night right before I go to sleep, basically. But I, I smoke 90% Sativa weed and maybe, yeah, like, 10% Indica. And sometimes that Indica will be a hybrid of some sort. I hope that, you know, Houseplant inspires people to be proud of of, of the fact that they smoke weed and their lifestyle. And, and, I, and I hope that it's, you know, just the fact that we're out there putting so much time and energy into smoking weed and I'm out here talking about it. I hope if you're someone who smokes weed and has been told that you shouldn't or there's something wrong with you or it's something you should be ashamed of, I hope that it's people like me and companies like ours that let you think that it's okay and that it's not just something that you shouldn't be ashamed of. It's something you should take pride in, just like any other thing someone does to help them get through the day or or, or that they outwardly enjoy, you know? Um, I think there's nothing wrong with it at all. 
Okay, we're back with Ainsley, and it's time to wrap up the show with Keeping Tabs. This is where each of us shares a story, trend, or company we're following right now. So Ainsley, since you're our guest, what are you keeping tabs on? I am currently obsessed with this rumor that's been going around. I think it started maybe last week about what was said to be a New Yorker, a draft of a New Yorker article about Tiger Global, which is a very sort of secretive investment firm. They backed a lot of the really prominent unicorns and they've had a little bit more of a tough time recently. And the guys who run it just never talk to the press. They're essentially, they're very secretive. And not only are they secretive, I think part of the reason sort of they can be secretive is that they don't typically get that involved with the companies they invest in. So there's not like a big sort of like paper trail or footprint. Anyway, they can really be in the shadows. Right. And people, even people who they're like, They'll write a check to someone and that person will barely kind of know them or interact with them. And then this rumor comes out, you start to see people on Twitter saying, hey, does anyone have this draft? Like, send it to me. I want to see it too. I was so surprised because I was like, how did a full draft get out? Good question. Yeah, particularly because obviously, like, even in like a fact checking process, you're not going to share a draft or anything like that. And the news came out, I think today in the New York Post, that it appears that this was actually a former I mean, a disgruntled employee who wrote a fake New Yorker article <laughs> full of essentially all the things that he has grievances about. And I think Tiger is now maybe like suing him. And anyway, it sounds like a complete mess. And but I'm also really impressed on a certain level that someone who's not a writer <laughs> managed to put together something yeah. that sort of passed muster as a real New Yorker article. If anyone listening has seen it and wants to send it to me, <laughs> I'm very available. <laughs> Josh, what are you keeping tabs on? I am in completely on-brand fashion as an audio producer and audio professional. I am keeping tabs on the podcasting and audio industry. There was another round of layoffs of a prominent media company, Audio First Media Company, Futuro Media, which is the company behind Latino USA, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning Suave podcast laid off 25% of their staff last week. This is just the latest in a round of what's been a lot of bad news for employment in media writ large, but the audio industry specifically. I think NPR laid off 10% of their staff. Gimlet Media laid off a large portion of their staff and then was completely dismantled and folded into Spotify along with Parcast. But the outlook for the podcasting specifically industry Mm -hmm. is really sunny in the macro sense. Like market share continues to grow. It's up to about $2 billion annual right now and is projected to grow exponentially over the next several years. But it's really kind of sad to see a lot of people that that I know or are former colleagues lose their jobs in the audio industry. But I think there is sunnier days ahead for audio professionals. Are, are you saying Harry and Meghan didn't deserve their check? <laughs> yes, I am saying Harry and Meghan did not deserve Ooh. their check. <laughs> hey, but I'm glad the guys from Smartless are doing well, you know? Good for them. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that's enough doom and gloom. Yaz, what's your keeping tabs? So Kanye West is dating this Italian. (laughs) Stop there. (laughs) Sorry, I I missed the rest of that after you said Kanye West. The thing that I'm fixated on is that the Daily Mail keeps calling his quote unquote wife. Like they put wife in quotes in every headline. What? Which is just like a really funny and weird stylistic choice. 
why why <laughs> I is don't there debate why over they whether they're married or not is this their i think they did some like weird fake ceremony right or like did they i don't really know because it's not like did they give each other promise rings is this what's happening did kanye west go full jonas brothers I don't want to read all these articles because, like, I don't want to know that much about Kanye West. But every time I see the wife in quotes in a headline, I crack up. (laughs) (laughs) That's so weird. That is very weird. There's some copy editor who is just like, I don't know. I don't know what to do with this. (laughs) Every every time I I, say we're keeping the quotes podcast, I'm going to do air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those are great in a famously non-visual medium. (laughs) Can I be a guest today? (laughs) Well, I'm joined by my producer. Do search. <laughs> That's it for quote unquote most innovative companies. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Our show is produced by Avery Miles and Blake Odom, mixed and sound designed by Nicholas Torres, and our executive producer is Josh Christensen. Remember again to subscribe, rate, and review, and we'll see you next week.